Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the word here. Again, picking up in Genesis chapter 13, we've... uh, over this last week, we really considered Abraham uh, and his trip into Egypt. And so what's been going on in Abram's life? Uh, he was called Abram, Ur of the Chaldeans. God, God picked him amongst all of these people and called him out, set him apart. Uh, he was a pagan. He was, he was amidst uh, a, a whole city of, of, of pagan idolatry. And, and as God begins to put his plan of salvation uh, really into, not, not that it hasn't been in place since the very beginning, but, but God is now beginning to take steps in, in calling out his chosen people Israel, beginning to establish a nation. He chooses Abram, and he calls Abram out from among his people, and he tells him that I want you to go. I want you to get out of your father's house. I want, to, want you to go to a land that I will show you. And we know that Abram began to journey there with his father and the uh, other members of his family. And they began to make their way toward that land that God would show them, that promised land. But they would not make it all the way before they would stop. And they would stop for a period of time, upwards of 25 years, depending on uh, who who you're reading and what research you're looking at. And they would kind of settle into another area. But this area that they would settle into, though they would be prosperous in that area, was not the place that God had for them, was not the place that God had for Abram. And it wasn't until Abram's father dies that then God uh, calls Abram again and says, go, I want you to go. And so we've considered uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, oftentimes in our own lives, when we experience God's call on our lives, but maybe we fail to fully realize that call. Maybe we fail to fully uh, step into that calling. And, and, and what causes us to do that? What, what, what prevents us from realizing God's calling in our lives? Well, a lot of times it's distraction, right? Uh, it can be just different distractions, things that lead us astray, uh, the, the temptations of the world that just sort of draw us in, different circumstances, maybe what it is that we need to give up, right? Maybe it's the idea of leaving family, the idea of leaving certain resources and comforts behind. There's a lot of different reasons why we often struggle to truly step out in faith and do what it is that the Lord is calling us to do. And it may be different for each and every one of you as you reflect on those times when you feel like God has been calling you to do something. Steps of faith are difficult. At the end of the day, that's literally what it's about, to take a big step of faith for God, which, by the way, I believe He always expects of His children. So if you call yourself a follower of Christ, uh, you should expect that you're going to have to take a big step of faith at some point in your life. Certainly taking that step of faith to believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's an element of of faith we know in in that very thing. But then God's going to begin to work in your life and He's going to begin to set you apart. He's going to call you to difficult things. And there may be times then along the way where we resist those those calls, where we don't take that step of faith. And And the fact is in those moments, what we need to realize then is we're missing out on much of what God has for us. 
It doesn't necessarily mean we won't be with Him for eternity. It doesn't mean that, that suddenly our ticket to heaven is punched and we don't get to go anymore. But there's much that God wants to do in your life and, and through your life. But oftentimes it's going to require that you take a big step of faith. And so we see this in the life of Abram. And, and so this time comes where he begins to move again. He begins to step out and take that, that big step of faith. And it truly is because at this particular time for Abram, even to tell somebody, hey, I, I'm, I'm listening to God and I'm going after this. For, for, for many people at this time, they're saying, who? Who are you listening to? Who are you following? Because the, the God of Israel was, was to many at this time a very unknown God, Right? For us today as Christians, we can tell one another, hey, we're going to take a step of faith. Hey, God's telling me to do this. And here in this room, if I were to tell you right now, hey, God, I, th I think God's calling me to do this. And, and maybe you think, holy smokes, that's a little crazy. That sounds like a big step of faith. But you're not really going to question who I'm talking about. You're not really going to question this relationship that I'm referring to, right? Because you, you yourselves are saying, yeah, okay, I, I talk to God, right? I pray to God. I try to hear from God. So that is sort of a foundation that's already been set. You just might think, I'm, are you sure you're hearing from God about that? But, but for Abram, I mean, people would have to be thinking, I don't even know who, what you're talking about, right? None of this makes sense. And so it, what he was doing was radical, not to mention just his own step of faith here, going, man, I'm, I'm going to a place, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what it's going to be like when I get there. I, I don't know what God's going to do. And furthermore, he's telling me that he's going to make of me a great nation, that there's going to be all these descendants. I don't even have one. I have one child. Then God's telling me I'm going to have all these descendants. Right? There's just so many aspects of what God is calling Abram to here that it's just like, Man, this is big. So, so he starts to do this, right? He steps out, he goes, and he begins to come into the land that God has promised him. And when he gets there, well, he's not alone. There's already people in the land. So that's got to cause him to go, well, well, what's the deal? I thought this was my land, not their land. God reminds him again of the promise, encourages him, meets him right where he is. And so Abram continues to follow after the Lord. And along the way, he's worshiping God. He's, he's at various places stopping to, to worship God and to spend time in, in God's presence and to seek Him. And, and so, uh, in many respects, things are going well in terms of God just showing Himself faithful and, and, and Abram having the faith to continue to pilgrim, to, to make this pilgrimage in a foreign land. You know, not really feeling like he belongs anywhere. And certainly we get in his life uh, a wonderful example for us today of of how we should be that, you know, man, there's this sense of, I, I don't know that I really belong here. I, I, don't, I don't know that I, I, I feel like, I, uh, like this is my home, and, and it's because it's not. And so we've got to be comfortable like, like Abram, you know, continuing to seek after that, that city whose, whose builder and maker is, is God, looking for Him and where He wants us to be. But, you know, along the way, as you take those big steps of faith, remember that trials will come. And, and a trial came for, for Abram, a great famine came in the land, and, and it was in that, that time that un, unfortunately, instead of trusting God to provide for him and to care for him and his family, he decided they were going to go to Egypt where they might survive the famine. And remember, in Scripture, Egypt is always a picture of the world. 
No one ever goes up to Egypt. Everyone always goes down to Egypt. And so there's imagery there. And so Abram begins to make the journey down to Egypt, down to the world, seeking after the things of the world to provide, to care for him. And of course, as we know, and we won't go through all of this again, but as he makes his way into Egypt, he begins to stumble. Right? He concocts this idea for his own safety that he's going to tell people that Sarai is his sister and, and it's for his own protection. But, but the fact of the matter is what we considered last week is that oftentimes when we take that big step of faith, the trial comes. And then when that trial comes, if we don't handle it properly, what we do is we begin to compromise. And when we begin to compromise, then what ends up happening is we have a damaged testimony. right? And that's what happens oftentimes in our lives where the world begins to entice us and trials come and we try to figure out instead of, instead of trusting in God and, and not being moved, not being shaken, we say, okay, I, I've got to begin to figure this out. And then, and then certain aspects of the world, because of its practicality, begin to appeal to us and then we begin to convince ourselves, well, this just makes sense. Look, this is going to provide for me. This is going to care for me. I know God called me here, but this great job opportunity opened up and I'm going to step into that job opportunity and oh, lo and behold, I'm making money and now I'm paying my bills and I've got a little bit extra and look this has got to be a wonderful thing this must be God's plan for me and all those things that can seem really great because the world is just this practical thing that offers you stuff right all the while you're growing further and further away from what it is that God has called you to do and this is where Abram finds himself and unfortunately finds himself also then in a place where he's damaged his testimony where now he doesn't get the opportunity to tell those in Egypt about the one true God because instead here, they're saying, get out of here, go, go away, right? And so we find Abram then here at the beginning of chapter 13, he's now coming out of Egypt. And I would say, and, and this is what I would title the message here this evening, is coming out of Egypt. Because for each of us, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to come out of Egypt. We must come out of Egypt. Egypt being the world. We've got to come out of the world. When we get saved, we've got to leave the world behind. And it is a really hard thing to do because we still live in it, right? And so it's a challenge for us, but we've got to. We've got to be able to come out of the world. And that's where we find Abram here at the beginning of chapter 13 is, is a little bit sort of beat up, chewed up, spit out, and the world can often do this to you. He's making his way back toward the land that God had given him. And we see here, it says that Abram in chapter 13, verse 1, went up from Egypt. So he's coming up now. He's going back up to God's chosen land. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south, the south speaking of the, the, the southern part of the, uh, of the land of Israel. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai and to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called in the name of the Lord. And so I love this. And we considered this last week. I just I love this picture here because Abram's doing the right thing in this moment. Though he knows he's screwed up, though, he, though he's leaving uh, kind of beat up, where does he go? He goes back to the altar. He goes back to, that, to, the, to the beginning. And so when we find ourselves in Egypt, friends, when we find ourselves in the world, we repent and we do the first works. We go back to the beginning. And that's what Abram saw fit to do. He's remembering, where was I last closest to God? 
Where was I? Where was I when I was close to God? Where was I when my devotional life was strong? Where was I when I was reading the Bible regularly? Where was I when I was praying regularly? Where was I when I was going to church and I was I was fellowshipping with other believers and and I was accountable. I wasn't stumbling. I wasn't falling into sin. Where was that? And so sometimes we find ourselves back in the world and we got to think, man, there was this one point when I was on fire for Christ. Where was that? And we got to go back to that place. Go back to that. What were the things that were happening then? Was it that I was surrounding myself with believers? I had Christian brothers and sisters. I was in the Word every day. I was rising early in the morning. What were the routines that were happening? Begin to adopt those again. Just We considered in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, in the letters to the churches, this was the church to Ephesus. And, and, and Jesus is saying to John, write this down. He says, to the church in Ephesus. And he recognizes, you've done all these things, and you've done all these things well, but here's the thing. You have left your first love. This is repent and do the first works unless I come to you and remove your lampstand. Jesus was saying to that church, I love you. You guys were on fire at one point, but you've left your first love. Go back to the beginning. And so here Abram's doing that. And it's been said of Abram, of Abram here that he went to Egypt a saved man. He went to Egypt a man who was called by God, who believed in the one true God. And so he went to Egypt, yes, a saved man, but he came out of Egypt a spiritual man. And there's a difference there. And that same difference happens, that same difference is evident in our own lives when we first get saved and we come to Christ, but then sometimes we find ourselves going back to the world a little bit, or sometimes we find ourselves struggling through things a little bit. And, and it's in those trials that really, just like Abram, we learn something. We learn a little bit about God. You know, remember, God uses trials in our lives for a reason. And, and, and if, we, if we learn it, if we are willing to, to, to receive it and, and, and to consider what God is doing in our lives in those times, then we can become a more spiritual people. You see, Abram, as he's leaving Egypt now, he's going back to that altar, I believe, and granted it's speculation, but with a greater sense of urgency, a greater sense of fervor, a longing now for the presence of God. You know, before there may have been an aspect of routine, there may have been an aspect of I know this is the right thing to do, and I think as he's going back to this altar in Bethlehem, he's saying, I just want to be with God. I want to worship him. I want to tell him I'm sorry. And so he goes back to the beginning, and he trusts God for forgiveness and for restoration and to praise him for his grace and his mercy. And that's what we have in a faithful covenant God is one who is willing to forgive and so it says then here in verse 5 that Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land it's interesting what we see here in verse 7. It gives us some insight into some things. You see, as Abram and Lot returned, they had amassed considerable possessions, more than what they went into Egypt with. And it was growing increasingly difficult to remain together with all of these possessions, so much so that there was beginning to be conflicts between them. Now, there's a few things that are happening here that we need to pay attention to. First, there seem to be problems arising out of the stuff that they had amassed. 
in Egypt. You see, <laughs> when we spend time in the world, we inevitably begin to amass possessions. And so here, their worldly possessions, if you will, are beginning to cause a problem. I don't know if anybody can ever relate to that. Again, it, it, for me, when I consider this story, I shared this last week, it's, it's just always so familiar because, because in many respects, that was me. There was a calling on my life. I knew clearly what the Lord had called me to. And over time, I found myself way over here, back in the world. And in that time, I had amassed all these possessions. And as we began to say, okay, God, <laughs> I, I repent of this. And I want to come out of Egypt. I want to come back to you. Then we had to begin the process of just going, we've got to get rid of stuff. We've got to start offloading this stuff, right? Now, secondly here, they were beginning to argue. And so they weren't treating each other well. The herdsmen were beginning, there was strife between them. These two groups of people who had been together for a long period of time, they had known each other, they're now beginning to fight. As they spent time in the world, as they had amassed great possessions, now these people who truly are brethren are beginning to fight. There's conflict. And thirdly, what, what verse 7 here really gives us insight, because it's, it, it's sort of this odd placement here at the end of verse 7, it says, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Well, what, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that, unfortunately here, the, the infighting between Abram and Lot was on display before the people of the land. In other words, the world was watching. Okay? The world was watching. And so Abram... Wisdom here, you can see that Abram has changed a little bit. He's, being, he, he, he's, he's now recognizing some of these things. He's, and, and think for Abram, what had, what had just happened for him? Abram, if he's the man that Scripture tells us that he was, then that he, as he's coming out of Egypt, he's thinking, I blew it. I blew it. I, I, blew, I blew my testimony. I missed an opportunity. There was a world that was watching and I let them down. And so now, here they're coming into the land that God has promised them and, it, and there's people in the land and they're, they're observing this and, and he's got to be thinking, we, we can't do this. Not again. I can't, I can't blow a testimony again. And so he comes in verse 8 to Lot and he says, please, let there be no strife between you and me. And between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, why? For we are brethren. We're family. He says we're family. What Abram essentially says here is, we, we are family, we're brothers, and what unites us should be far greater than what divides us. And so he says, let's please not fight. And so in an incredible act of, of humility, Abram suggests a parting of ways, and not only a parting of ways here, but he gives a lot preference. So as they're coming to the land here, he says, please, I don't want to fight with you, and so let's figure out how to make this work. And he begins to give Lot preference over choice in the land. And so in verse 9, he says to him, is not the whole land before you? Look, look at all this, all this land that we have that God has given us. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. This is incredible humility on the part of Abram. Not just because here we see that he's just very content, it seems, to go, whatever you want. But, but to also consider here that Abram had the right to first choice. He absolutely had a right to first choice here. He was older. 
and that in and of itself carried a ton of weight. He was more of a father figure to Lot. And, and furthermore, he was the one that God had chosen and had blessed. Abram had every right to say, I get to pick and then you can have whatever's left and we'll go ahead and separate. But he gives Lot the first pick. In humility and in pursuit of peace, Abram esteems Lot above himself. That's biblical, right? He esteems another higher than himself. And so, guys, we must not miss the lesson here. What I want us to consider here tonight, and I think it's very fitting for where we're at just in our world today, is the fact that the church has never been, in my opinion, so divided as it is right now. I really believe that. Consider just for a moment some of the division within the church that some of you may, may very well be aware of because it's just right in front of us, right? Think about views on politics. We could spend all night on that, right? My goodness. How about views within the church on, on race and racial reconciliation and the events of the last year alone? Think about COVID. My goodness. Masks, no masks. Masks sometimes, masks all the time. Enter in vaccine, right? Vaccine, no vaccine. If you don't take the vaccine, what's that mean for me? If you do take the vaccine, what's that mean? All the different opinions, right? Then take all those things and put it on social media and then see what happens, how much more division comes, right? Do I need to, I mean, we, we can just be, continue to make the list. And guys, we've got to consider that. We've got to consider that within the context of what we're looking at here because Abram comes and he says, no, let it not be so. Let us not fight. We're brethren. You see, the thing is, is we have forgotten within the church today, I believe, and again, blanket statement here, I think we've largely forgotten what it is that binds us together. And listen, our, our president today gave, gave, a, gave an address that, and talked about the, we, need to, we need to remember what binds us together as a country. And I'm not even talking about that, okay? Don't mistake that language here. What I'm talking about is the church. What binds us together? I read an article today, and I completely lost the reference, so forgive me, but I have the quote. It says, our Christian unity is not built on a set of common attitudes, pursuits, convictions, experiences, or political beliefs, but wholly on the shed blood of Jesus Christ to whom we are united by faith and thus united to one another. Do we understand that? We mustn't forget that. We are not the church because you're a Republican or a Democrat or because you, ha you, you have these hobbies, or because you have uh, this approach to these various social issues. The Word of God informs those things, yes. But at the end of the day, what unites us, what ultimately will cause so many people who, to some degree today, display, or at least their behavior suggests that they hate one another, will be looking at each other in the kingdom of heaven. That's problematic, right? That's a problem. And far too many people seem perfectly content to allow that to be the case because I'm right and you're wrong. Jesus died for this. What are we representing? On a daily basis when things sort of cause us to be angry and frustrated, are we able to look beyond those things and to go, man, we are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And we've got to protect that and defend that and stand for that and trust that what God says in His Word and what Jesus said would happen, that if we stand on that and that alone, that He will work, that His Spirit will move, that He will unite people, that He will accomplish great things in terms of transforming hearts and minds so that I don't need to go out there and try to convince you to have a different political perspective. If I just give you the gospel and you get saved, you're going to, be able to, be, you're going to start to be transformed. And then even within it, yeah, we're going to have some times and different things where we go, I've got to see this this way and i kind of see this this way but you know at the end of the day i love you because you're my brother you're my sister and i'm going to spend eternity with you right and so listen we must begin once again looking beyond the things of this world to the very supernatural thing that unites us and that's the shed blood of jesus christ romans chapter 12 verse 18 if it is possible as much as depends on you Live peaceably with all men. That puts the onus on you. What are you doing to live peaceably with all men? Let's consider for a moment uh, Abram's own demonstration of humility towards Lot, which I believe is absolutely a, uh, consistent with what we read in Philippians in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross right? it's the ultimate act of humility or let's go back over the last few weeks and sundays and, and consider once again matthew 18 matthew 18 humility right first and foremost humility then a, then a, a, a radical focus on your own personal holiness, dealing with sin aggressively in your life, tremendous care for one another, pursuit of forgiveness and reconciliation. Those principles are to be in place amongst the body of believers. Now, we know that then division is there. And, and, and we can ask the question, well, why? What is the underlying issue for what is dividing us today? And I think we see it on display here in Scripture. Back in, in Genesis, in verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes. So remember, now Lot's been given, he's been given an opportunity. Look, look, Abram says, look at all the land before us. You, you choose. And Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, parentheses, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord. And so at this particular time, it was very lush. It's not desert like it was like it is today. Remember, this is closer to the time of the flood. And so things have changed a bit. And uh, it's like the garden of the Lord. It's like the garden of Eden. It's like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. And so in verse 11, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And so sadly, I think Abram 
you know, first here, I think what Abram shows us is that there are times when in order to avoid strife, we must peaceably separate. I think there's a principle that we see here, but it ought not to be that case. Unfortunately, the division is there because like Lot, I think there's a lot of the world left in the church today. I think there was a lot of Egypt left in Lot at this time. Lot hadn't fully left Egypt. Possessions, wealth, the things of this world, I believe still had a grip on him. It was Abram who had left Egypt. It was Abram who had taken his lumps, who had learned his lesson there, who was like, man, I am getting out of here. It was Abram who went to the altar, who repented, who did the first works. But think of this, there's, there's no mention of Lot's worship. There's no mention of Lot's pursuit at this time. I'm, I'm not saying he was, uh, he was just lost, but it doesn't seem like he was in the same place spiritually as Abram was. There's no mention of his worship, no mention of him seeking the Lord at this time, no mention of him considering God and his decision of where he was going to put up his tent, where he was going to camp. Certainly God would not have advised him, hey, go pitch your tent by Sodom, Right? And so for, for Lot here, I think he too was on his journey of compromise. And he was heading down that path away from the Lord and was content to pitch his tent toward Sodom. And it's interesting that we'll see with, with Lot that, you know, at first it was just, it was kind of, it was facing Sodom. And then he gets a little bit closer. And then before too long here, within a couple of chapters, he's a leader, he's a leader in the city of wickedness. You see, again, it doesn't take long for us when we start to go towards the world that we begin to compromise and convince ourselves that, 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 that the things that we're doing are right and then before too long, boom, we're just in it. And again, we find ourselves going, man, how did I get here? And so I think there was a lot of Egypt left in, in Lot at this point. And, and, and guys, when we, when we fix our eyes on the things of this world, we will inevitably follow after it. When we're looking at it, Listen, when you're driving, everybody knows this, when you're driving, right? When you put your eyes on something, what are you going to do? You're going to start to drift that way. It's just what you do. Same thing in a, in a boat or whatever. You're driving anything, you put your eyes on something, inevitably you're going to start to go that direction, right? And at first it may seem, it may seem just, just minor, one little, one little degree. But the further you go, man, all of a sudden you're way out there. And, and, and when we do that, when we follow after the things of the world, we very soon find ourselves at odds with the very people we are called to be in unity with in this world. And then the, the sin begins to take its toll on the individual, whereas there is blessing upon those who continue after him in obedience. And we're going to see that contrast here between Lot and between Abram. And this division comes in, and, 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 and that's what I think is happening within the church, is there's too much of the world within the church, and it's causing that division because you have parts of the church that are saying, I'm going to be obedient. Even if it's hard, I'm going to follow after God. I'm going to do the things that God's calling me to do. And you've got too much world in some of the church, and they're getting stuck here. Now that the division starts to come, and we forget what binds us together. And that's what's happening here between Abram and Lot. In verse 14, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And so Abram may have had the difficult choice of leaving the world behind. 
But what he gained in return was far beyond his comprehension and it is for us as well. Because as soon as he was willing to see, he humbled himself. And, and of course, Lot was quick to go, man, I'm going to choose this over here. This looks great. Looks way better than that over there. We got green pastures and all this stuff. And yeah, maybe there's a wicked city down there full of people, but yeah, that's okay. This pasture's really good. That's not going to bother me. It's not going to be a big deal that I'm right next to them. They're not going to influence me. This opportunity is too good. And Abram looks at what he's got there and he's thinking, well, I'm going to trust, Lord, that you're going to honor this because this doesn't look as promising as that maybe. It's fertile, but, but I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to trust. And, and how often do we have to do that? How often do we have to, to sort of turn away from what this world is maybe offering us? And at the time it seems like, man, I'm passing up on something that's really good. But when we do that in obedience and we follow after God, then God comes and he blesses us. He says, look what I'm going to do for you. And so here he tells Abram, it's all, look at all this stuff. And as Abram makes his way through, he begins to see how, how truly wonderful the land that he has is. And then God reminds him again, reminds him of the promise again. I'm going to make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. He's going to say, there's going to be so many of them. You won't even know it. And he says, walk through it. Go see. Go see how great it is. God in this moment is proud of Abram. And in verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And look what he does again. And he builds an altar there to the Lord. So Abram's continuing in his worship. He's continuing to distance himself from Egypt and from Sodom. He's come out of the world and continues to worship. And, and this is going to be key in sustaining Abram through even the trials that are to come because he's just spending regular time in communion with God looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. You see, Abram, once again, he's, he's moving his tent, right? He's going where the Lord tells him to go. He's not going to just put down roots. And in, verse, or excuse me, in chapter 14 then, in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Cheddar, Lo I hate that one, King Cheddar, Cheddar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinad, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So this is in the valley of the Dead Sea. Okay? In verse 4, 12 years they served Chedor Laomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Okay? In, in Scripture, 12 years is, is, is a number that's often used in terms of uh, government and authority and rule, and 13 is a number that often indicates a time of rebellion, and that's playing out here in this first example that we see. And what's happened here is a confederation of kings have come together and they begin to overtake the area. Why? Well, because this particular area was very fertile. It was very plentiful. Uh, the Dead Sea area, even though it's called the Dead Sea because it's dead in many respects, it's filled with various nutrients and resources. In fact, in this area also were tar pits. And so there's a lot of things there that, was, uh, that, that these guys wanted to have. Okay, And so now, here, so here now is another trial. Now some years have gone by, but... but Abram's a little bit of a different guy now, and he's trusting God. And so even though there's kings coming through the area, he seems to be trusting God to care for him and protect him. 
But then, after 12 years of rule, some of these kings are saying, no, we're going we're gonna to rebel. And in the 14th year, Cheddar Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim and Shavah, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to Enmishvet, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. And so the conflict is continuing. That's really all this is telling us, is that they're making their way throughout the land. Conflict is continuing. Now it's even greater because they're sort of going against each other here. And in verse 8, in the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Okay, so here's this conflict here, and now the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they flee, and some fell there of their army, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And look, verse 12, and they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. You see, at this point now, several years have gone by and Lot has remained in this place and he didn't just remain where he was. He started to make his way into Sodom. Note before he just pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now it says that he was in it. That's inevitably what happens, guys. We can convince ourselves all we want that we can sort of walk that fine line between God's, where God wants us to be in the world. But when we do that, when we begin to, to try and tiptoe along that line, we find ourselves more times than not just going into the world, and that's exactly where Lot was. He'd grown closer to Sodom physically and in his heart also, and he's swept up in this siege, but Abram finds out. And in verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. It's pretty cool here. Abram, he uh, finds out that Lot's in trouble, right? And uh, man, there's been war that's been waging on now for well over a decade. And these guys are pretty fierce. But Abram, when he finds, you know, and it seems like he's sort of keeping to himself, Right? He's not getting stirred up by this stuff. He's not moved by these things. He's just, man, I'm where God wants me to be. I'm okay. I'm content. God's caring for me. God's protecting me. But then word comes to him, Lot's been taken. And Abram's like, oh no. Mm -mm. Not going to let that happen, right? And so he gets all of his, his servants together, 318 of them, and he says, here's a weapon. Get ready. We're going to go. And this is one of those crazy moments, okay? This is one of those times when people were likely saying, I don't know that that's a very good idea. In many respects, Abram in this moment's like Jesus who says, I'll leave the 99 and go after the one because he's that important. And a lot of people probably saying, you know, a, lot, a long time ago pitched his tent at Sodom. Why don't you just kind of let him, he, he got what's coming to him, right? But Abram's thinking, no, no way. I love him too much. I care about him too much, right? How often does that happen in the church? Yeah, see? See, I knew it was coming for him. 
They did this. They did this. Yep. See, let them go. No. Not unless a Matthew 18 process of discipline has been put into place where they've, they've rejected you over and over in the confrontation. You say, okay, now I've got to send you out. But even then, we still care for and we still love and we're still willing to humble ourselves and go after somebody. And so here, once again, Abram gives us an incredible pattern for just what it means to truly sacrifice yourself for another. So he gets his guys together. He trains them up. I don't know exactly how long this took. And he, he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Who all in here was with, in Israel with us? Just, just Melissa, you remember this? You remember where we? You remember where we were at? And they had, um, they had uncovered uh, that big gate, and it was under the awning, right? That was the area where Abram went to to rescue Lot. So you can go and you can see these places. Okay. For a long time, people thought that Abram was just kind of like, nah, he didn't really exist. Praise the Lord for archaeologists who just continue to dig this stuff up and layer upon layer upon layer, and then you find these cities, right? And so you can go to this place. You can go to where, where Abram and his men went to, to rescue Lot. And it says in verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And so he brought back, look, he went after them, pursued them. Now they came in at night, and it was likely a bit of a surprise attack. And, and so these people are all thrown off. Uh, again, by definition of surprise, they didn't see it coming, and they're scared and they run. And, and, and that doesn't stop them, Abram. They go after him even further. And they're victorious. It says in verse 16, So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Man, this was a victory. And, and, and rest assured, this is all the Lord. Okay? Abram doesn't just train up 318 servants and go out and, and, and defeat an army like this that has been successfully sweeping through the area for years. Okay, this is God-ordained. He shouldn't have been successful in this effort. And so then, Abram here shows, and this, and this, again, this is something we need to pay attention to here because he shows himself now to be a formidable force. Not to mention here, he's dealt with a common enemy in the land, an enemy that had just run off the king of Sodom. And what do you know? But as Abram's coming back, his victory is heard throughout the land, here the world comes knocking on Abram's door, right? And it says in verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Sodom had been humiliated, and now Abram has won a victory over Sodom's enemy, but the king of Sodom who really here we must understand is a picture of the world also. He's a picture of Satan. He's a picture of the enemy here. He sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity to come to Abram to say, hey, let's work out a little deal here. And it's amazing though because someone else shows up. In verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. Now, this is a super interesting encounter, okay? There's a lot of people that have debated for many years, who is Melchizedek, right? And, and, and what we know is this, okay? What we know is this. Salem means peace. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Who might a king of righteousness from a place of peace be? Who we don't know anything about, who just sort of shows up out of nowhere, here's some bread and wine, right? 
who, who the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 3 says this of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Let's look at this a little bit differently, okay? Abram's coming back from battle. The world has taken notice. Satan shows up on his doorstep, says, let's work out a deal. And Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. I firmly believe that this is a Christophany. This is an early appearance of Jesus. I think that's who Melchizedek is. And he, he's come, if you will, to intercede for Abram. The same way, Christian, that he's interceding for you today. Seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Right? To ever live to make intercession for us. He's always been in the business of defending his people. And here he comes, and it says in verses 19 and 20, and he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Jesus comes in this moment interceding for Abram, and he looks to Abram when the world is coming now, and the world is beginning to entice him, the world is beginning to try and draw him in again to see, maybe I can get a hook in him. Maybe I, and Jesus comes and he reminds Abram of who he is. It reminds him of who he is. It reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I believe in this very moment, Abram was experiencing a temptation from the world. Hey, you've got all this stuff, right? I mean, let's jump ahead for a moment. In verse 21, this is what the king of Sodom offers to Abram. It says, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Do you know this? Remember, this is the Old Testament, so we go from a Hebrew translation. Do you know what the translation into Hebrew of persons is? Souls. This proverbial Satan shows up to Abram and he says, Hey, give me all those souls and I'll give you everything the world has to offer. But Jesus comes and he says, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are, that you are blessed by the God most high, that you're the possessor of heaven and earth. You don't need what this world has to offer. You're blessed by the God most high, that he's delivered you. Don't you forget, Abram, who you are. And praise the Lord that Abram here, he gets it. He recognizes it. I mean, we, we, listen, when you're, when you're encountering a Christophany, Right When Jesus is, is showing up to you, it, it's only going to prompt worship. And so Abram, it says, if you go back to the latter part of verse 20 there, he says he gave him a tithe of all. It says that Abram in that moment just said, because he came back with all the possessions, he says, here, you take this. You deserve this. And so then the king of Sodom puts this, this offer in front of Abram here. And then Abram, because of, because of being reminded of, of who he is, because of, of Jesus coming to him again and interceding for him again in, in verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portions. Abram says, I don't want this world. 
He says, I serve someone greater. And I've raised my hand to him. I have blessed him. I have sworn allegiance to him. And I don't want anything that you have to offer. He says, this world isn't my home. And when we consider these two chapters, then we look at what's happened here. We look at the fact that Abram came out of the world, beat up, chewed up, spit out. And he repented and he did the first works and he began to live his life in obedience to God and God blessed it. Even though he gave up different things, he gave up certain privileges and certain pleasures in the world, God blessed it. And when the opportunity came around again, the world came knocking again, he says, no. Because Jesus reminded him of who he is. And guys, I would submit to each and every one of you tonight and those of you watching online and for us just to have this regular reminder on a daily basis when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, when we walk out of our house, everywhere we go, that we would be reminded of who we are. And that as we remember who we are, who we're blessed by, who we're called to be, who delivers us, who cares for us, that we could then look at this world and say, I don't want any of it. And look here, he says, he says, other than what these guys have, have eaten, and, and so it's not to suggest that the world doesn't provide some basic necessity to us. You're going to wake up in the world tomorrow, should the Lord not decide to call you home or rapture his church. You're going to wake up in the world, and so you're in it. And I'm not suggesting you need to go out on the street and pitch a tent and say, I'm just going to stay right here, unless the Lord calls you to do something crazy like that. And we'll pray for you. Walk along with you best we can. And so there are certain aspects of this world that, yes, we will receive, but ultimately that we could look at all of it and say, I don't care. I don't need it. Whatever. The Lord provides. He gives it. He takes it away. It's fine. He's going to care for me. You have a loose grip on the things of this world, but that ultimately you know who you are. And I am so deeply saddened, and forgive me, I've got to be careful. There's that fine line between teaching and preaching, right? But guys, I'm saddened. And, 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 I, and I, this isn't coming from a place of saying I've got it all figured out and I do it perfect all the time. But in particular, over these last several weeks and over these last few days, and especially today, the comments I hear, the comments I read, the posts I'm seeing, all these different things. And listen, if somebody thinks I'm talking about you, please don't. Don't go there, okay? But I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, man, it's one thing. I expect it from the world, but I don't want to see it in the church. Because like Abram and Lot here, we ought to be on the side of Abram going, no. No, we can't see this division within the church. There's a world that's watching. And right now, right now in this country, because of, in large part, even though people want to say it's all these other things, people want to blame it on CNN or whoever, the church has made a fool of itself. When you've got a Christian leader this week, a prominent Christian leader who says of the 10 Republicans who chose to vote to impeach Donald Trump within the house said, I wonder what they I wonder what they got for that, or I wonder what the 30 pieces of silver was that they took to impeach Trump. Are you kidding me? Do you, do, you, do you understand the ramifications of that statement? Does anybody understand the true parallel of that statement? That that leading Christian leader in our country just said, Trump is equal with Jesus. That this is the same scenario. Give me a break, people. And for far too long, the church has mistaken who their Savior is. And it's brought so much division into the church. And listen, it, based off of what's happening, based off of a new administration and all those things, which, by the way, I, I personally am not that concerned about anything, but might there be persecution that comes? Might the Equality Act be pushed through and it begins to serve as a form of censorship for the church, which increases persecution and depending on 
what state you live in and who's there that they start to go, Pastor, you can't say that. It could happen. It absolutely could happen. What if it does? In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. But I'm an American, and I don't deserve to be treated that way. Right? Yes, we have long experienced wonderful blessings in this country. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. Apart from the nation of Israel, I believe this is the greatest country on the planet. And, and, and why? Because it was founded, not by perfect men, but on biblical principles. And throughout our history, we long stood for and supported the nation of Israel, and we experienced God's blessing because of that. But I don't deserve anything. And do I want to continue to see peace in this country? Absolutely. Do I want my children to grow up and to, and to know uh, experiences like I had growing up? Absolutely. Please don't ever misunderstand that. But I refuse to risk division within the church and to waste time fighting for something that has not yet happened and may not happen in exchange for faithfully preaching the gospel day to day. And I don't mean to get all dramatic on you, but if the day comes where then somebody walks in here and hauls me out of here and throws me in prison, then two things need to happen on that day. Somebody be better be ready to stand in this pulpit and to finish the message and then to say, we better go do something about this and get him out. But I'm not expecting you to exchange faithful service of the Lord for protest and, and, and bickering about all these other things that haven't even happened. You can say what you want about the current administration and what conspiracies may be happening behind the scenes, but the guy put his hand on a Bible today and went to church before the inauguration. I'm not making a statement about who he is or his morals or anything else, but that's all a little fishy compared to everything that everybody's going to say is going to happen by tomorrow morning or whatever the case may be. We're called to this. We're called to live this faithfully. We were bought with a price. We as individuals, this church was established by Jesus Christ. He would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he takes it very seriously. Consider this past Sunday and, the, 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 and, and, and marriage and why God hates divorce and takes marriage so seriously because it's a picture. And when we so willingly enter into strife amongst the body of Christ, when, we're allowed to, when we allow division to come in based off of politics and all these other worldly things, what do we then communicate to Jesus about his church, about his bride? That we're willing to defame it? That we're willing to misrepresent it? Or might we say, this is not my home. None of these things matter. Serving you and you alone, Lord. That's what I'm going to do. Amen? Comments, questions as we close.
Amen. I've said it before. I don't wake up in the morning and go, man, I hope I get persecuted today. But Scripture says it's going to come. That it will happen. That times will get worse. That it must. So what am I going to do? Say, well, Lord, because I love my peace so much and because I love this country so much, if we could really just kind of keep things really peaceful and delay your coming or keep me comfortable until you do, that's an awful prayer. And we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right? He'll care for us. He'll take care of us. Let's be a people that are about him. And let's let the world see that. Let's let the world go, wow, that's different. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for our time together here this evening. We thank you, Lord, for your word and what we see within it, Lord, how you teach us through your spirit. Lord, I thank you for the exhortation and the challenge that comes from it, Lord. Forgive us, Father, for the times in which we we do go astray, where we find ourselves in the world, Lord, way too far. Lord, bring us back. Chase us down, Lord. And help us, Lord, to be a people who just faithfully follow after you, who know, Lord, and live in a way where we, we, we communicate to this world that this is not our home. Help us to love one another, and especially within the church, Lord, may we have unity, not division. May we unite around those things that are truly important, Lord, chief of which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May that inform everything else that we do. Lord, help us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, forgive me if anything here tonight was was spoken in error, Lord. If anything was more of my flesh than the Spirit, Lord, forgive me. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be radical, to turn away from this world. Help us to flee from Egypt, Lord, and never look back to be grateful, Lord, for all the blessings that we have. Yes, when we have the opportunity to to seek to protect those things for the well-being of all, Lord. But ultimately, should things be taken from us, Lord, ultimately, should some of these things pass away, Lord, you don't. You're faithful. And so, Lord, help us to live for you above all else, to not put our hope in anything that this world has to offer. Intercede for us continually, Lord, we ask. Remind us, Lord, of who we are, of who's delivered us, of who's blessed us, that we would say to this world, no. There's nothing that you have that I want. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for our time tonight, Lord. Lord, do a great work in this year ahead, I pray. Go before us, Lord. Lead us and guide us like Abram and his men, perhaps, Lord, on a crazy, reckless pursuit. Uh, Just go before us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.